I appreciate the prayer, both in Brian's confession and in the request for power. I am very aware, just in particular, I haven't talked with Lenny at the beginning of the service, um, that we're not particularly aware. Um, I think we're aware in concept, but probably not in practice, of how much we are under assault, we are under attack. And that the things that we are trying to do within this group that we want to see spread out from this group um, are really um, not just countercultural, but spiritually contrary to the agenda of the one that seems to control much of the academy, much of the media, uh, an anti-humble and faithful message. Uh, is attacking us, and it has a spiritual basis, um, and we're sleepy, if we're honest, aren't we? The word Lenny shared with me was was that of apathy, and I, I feel that burden. I feel that sense of being tired at times and wanting a comfortable life and wanting things to just sort of go away that are problems. And that's not the way the world works, not the way that the Lord has allowed the world to work. Uh, think of a video that Aldo sent me. It was on the topic of homosexuality, and it was not by a Christian in any stretch. It was instead someone singing about coming for our children. It was essentially saying, you, uh, you've been hateful towards us. You think that we're going to spoil your kids. And uh, so you're right. We're coming for them. We'll win them through the media. We'll win them through the classroom. And in a generation, they'll belong to us. What you were afraid of is what you're going to get. I appreciated the honesty, uh, the terror-inducing honesty <laughs> of, of the video. It's not one I'm going to send you. Well, who knows? Maybe I will. Maybe we'll put a link to it in the, in the email. Because it's a splash of cold water to a church that's been asleep for a really long time. In particular, our kids are under assault, guys. What we see in Mark 9, starting verse 14, remember the context of it, right? There was the confession of Peter, that Jesus was the Christ, and that that words so laden with military triumph needed to be reimagined so that it included and was primarily focused around suffering and rejection and death. Future resurrection, but those first. Peter rejecting Jesus and, <laughs> and rebuking Jesus, and then Jesus rebuking Satan, who was under that, that wording. Then the transfiguration. Jesus taking a few up onto the mountain, and the voice from heaven, much like Sinai, kind of surrounding them and saying, this is my boy, I want you to listen to my boy. <laughs> Stop looking other places. What he calls you to do, you need to be willing to do. And then the question of whether or not we were going to be ultimately in the midst of all this, ashamed of what Jesus asks us to do. <laughs> if we haven't felt that sense that we are being asked by God to do things that are going to leave us unpopular, do thy friends despise, forsake thee, 
what to do next? Are our kids under assault? What to do next? Do we feel losses and suffering and is life becoming increasingly harder? Has the Lord taken away at times it seems more than he's given? What to do next? I think we've been doing all the wrong things sometimes. The refrain of the song is take it to the Lord in prayer. And if we revisit the beginning of this uh, this section, just listen to it again with me in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd when they saw them were greatly amazed, ran up and greeting them. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? What's going on? And the dilemma around them unfolds because you have an unable, incapable group of disciples in the midst of the unwaning grip of the enemy. And we see that grip, this unrelenting grip of one who has held on to a child for so long. Someone from the crowd answered him, I brought my son. He is a spirit. It makes him mute, seizes him, throws him to the ground, foams and grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid, this poor boy, this poor dad. And he's come to the functioning representation of Jesus and his followers. And says, can you do anything? And verse 18 continues, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. This is primarily about this moment, right? We've got to remember how we read Scripture. We read Scripture as understanding not, uh, this is not a parable. This is history. This is something that happened We're going to look at what happened. But as we try to look backwards and ask the question of why do we care? One, we care because it's God's word. We believe God's spirit is active in this moment. But two, I want you to care because I see parallels in this text. A threatened group of little ones under the direct attack of the enemy and in a sleepy, incapable, unable church to do anything. We can talk so much about tactics and strategies and figuring out how to equip ourselves apologetically, how to win our, our way back into the media, how to try to influence uh, the academy, and that could work, but so far it hasn't, if we're just being honest. We're exposed as unable and vulnerable And Jesus diagnoses the problem in his day and more than likely the problem in our day and he calls it a lack of faith. He says, oh faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. And in the last grip that Mark wants to let us know just how desperate the situation is, the the spirit inside the boy sees the authoritative one before him and just digs his heels in one more time. The spirit saw him immediately, convulsed the boy, fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus says, how long has this been going on? From childhood. He's a child now, but the point is basically all his life. So here we are. A church under assault, going back into a culture that seems to have the upper hand and seems to have won in some ways, these large battles around us. And we have to ask the question, what do we do? What do we do? 
And I think it's the wrong question. Because we've been doing a lot. And if you visit the disciples, I think they'd already been asking the question in this text. What should they do? What should they do? And they probably tried a lot. And they were unable to cast it out. And Jesus doesn't come back to them and just diagnose them as primarily ill-informed. Oh, generation that has less knowledge. He doesn't seem to try and talk to them about the tactics and strategies as though they needed more training. Oh, generation that is trained less. He says they need more faith. And faith rightly understood, the way we've tried to talk about it, the way Mark seems to call for it, never has us at the center, never has our resources at the center. It always has Christ at the center. So in light of where we're at as a church, both personally and culturally, let's just do what Mark does. He's going to show us two things about Jesus. All right? But don't be tricked into thinking that because this is not three points, it will be short. I have no idea how long this will take. But we are going to skip a little bit, all right? There are two things I want you to see about Jesus that I think Mark really highlights, and I'm going to show you the second one first, all right? So the first vivid detail that we need to see is going to begin in verse 25. After this dialogue happens from 21 and on, we start into 25 and we see this. Jesus cares about our sufferings. Jesus cares about this little boy. Watch it play out. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. On this battle, the boy is the battlefield. And at the end of this struggle that takes place between the ultimately authoritative one in the Messiah, the Son of God, and our relative power of the enemy, the battlefield of the boy looks just ravaged. This must have been some struggle if the boy is just that still and he's not immediately lively. I, I take that as encouragement. These moments Mark gives us to remind us that sometimes he heals. Sometimes the process of healing is a little bit more progressive. Sometimes healing is instantaneous and sometimes it is transformative over time. And whatever happened here, it was powerful. Some of those moments, Mark's like, you just need to understand, this was a struggle. I'm like, Mark, why are you so brief and to the point? Could you just tell us more? He's like, yeah, nah. But it did leave the boy like he was dead. And I love the progression. It says, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. It's a great little phrase. And I was curious about it because it sounded familiar. Took him by the hand and lifted him up. Took him by the hand and lifted him up. Do you know what happened every time I went and looked in the Old Testament? Almost every time the hand of God is mentioned, it's mentioned about power. 
it's mentioned with regard to authority. So you get all of these kind of military statements about God and your hand arise and do something with your hand. God, take up your sword in your hand. Or those of us with authority at your right hand or your enemies at your hand. There's this just overwhelming weight of Old Testament language about the hand of God representing the power of God. And then you come to the passage that Mary read to us from Psalm 18. Here's what's said. Who is God but the Lord? Who's a rock except our God? He equipped, made me blameless, trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a metal bow. You've given me your shield and then your right hand in regard to the way he talks about the same hand that will conquer the enemies is the one that reaches out to us. And he says, your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. I find this to be fascinating about who God is and how he reveals himself. Just in this anthropomorphic use of the word hand to describe the fact that on one hand, God is strongly opposed to his enemies and has authority over them, but then he uses that same strong hand to lend support to those that he calls his friends. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And it sounded familiar because it's the same thing that happened in Mark one thirty one. Jesus came and took her by the hand. This is Peter's mother-in-law, remember that? Took her by the hand and lifted her up. I was like, ah, that's, that's where we've heard that before. The fever left her, she began to serve them. But then it's not just Jesus. Later on, Luke starts writing, kind of using that same language. Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strong. Peter said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes when she saw Peter. She, stand, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. The strong God not only raises us up, but then he shares that capacity with us. Peter, who watched Jesus do this to his mother-in-law, later gets to mimic Jesus, imitate Jesus, and represent Jesus with that same sense that the power he's been granted can be used gently to support others. But the other thing is that when Jesus comes and takes his strong hand and lifts him up, he gets up. It's the way the verse ends. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. What it means about the little boy is that though there was suffering in his past, great suffering, a battlefield that left him as though dead kind of suffering, when he met Jesus, he got up. It was part of his story, but it didn't define his future. And if we translate this a little bit as a parallel, because remember, it's not first a parallel. This isn't a parable. This is real. But can't we put ourselves in the place of this boy? There are so many ways that as I know your stories and as you know mine, you know the enemy holds sway. And it's so easy so often for us to look back and say the way I was raised or the things I did when I was young 
I feel like such a weight. And yet Jesus, the powerful one, has the ability to shed that from us. Reach out to us. Support us. Lift us up. That's okay. Let's get moving. And that's because Jesus cares about our suffering. But you notice what he didn't do? He didn't come over to the boy and say, would you get up? Come on, demon's gone. You're better. Get up, get going. He's with him when he arises. And he makes it possible for him to get up. And Peter does the same. And we, arising with Jesus, are strengthened for that same kind of ministry, but only if we take a lesson from Jesus and we care. The question truly is, do we care about those that are hurting? Because it's easier to look and to judge. (laughs) It's so much easier to look at the end of somebody's story where they arrived and say, well, I know exactly why this happened. Who sinned, Jesus? This man? His parents. Because we want to be just exactly like everybody else in the book of Job, right? We want to figure out whose fault it is. Because it makes stories so much neater and so much cleaner. And it's just so much harder to do what Jesus did with us. To care. And to ask. And to help. And then to walk with. But Jesus cares greatly about our suffering and he then enables us to care deeply about the sufferings of others as well. It's first vivid detail we need to see, and that kind of took us from 25 on, but if we backtrack just a little bit, remember Jesus had asked, how long has this been going on? He said it happened from childhood on, but then the dad, before the boy's healed, right? So we're going backward into the story. At verse 22, he keeps telling the story. And it helps to unpack why this seems so daunting to both the dad and to the disciples. But he's talking with the dad in the beginning, and the dad says, and it is often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. Interesting phrase. So very different than another that Jesus encountered earlier in the book. Remember when one came to him and said, if you will, I know you can. Such a very, very different phrase. Belief and unbelief often sound so similar. Do you remember when we were spending time in the book of Luke and we were thinking about Mary and Zechariah? Similar kind of phrasing, wasn't it? Zechariah, hearing that his wife is going to have a baby, says something along the lines of, how can this be possible? And he doesn't get to speak with a mouth like that for a while. Mary's words are so similar and yet so different because they ask, how will it happen? Not can, but how will? But sadly, this man goes with the can. And before we just kind of, you know, jump on Jesus' side here, I'll get with him and sort of, you know, look at the guy and go, what's your problem? Well, let's ask what his problem is. 
He's had a boy who, since he was a baby, has been possessed by a spirit that has given him what looked like paralyzing epileptic seizures and given him the inability to discuss what his life is like. That's all he's known. Then Jesus comes into town and his hope arises. He can't quite get to Jesus, but the disciples are there and he's heard that these guys have the same kind of power, same kind of capacity that Jesus does. And so he brings the boy to the disciples and they drop the ball. We don't know how long, Mark doesn't tell us, but enough for him to be able to say, I tried, it didn't work. And I really hoped you could do it, but it just doesn't quite seem like this is going to work. So I don't know if you can do this. See, when I try to use that as a parallel in my life, I think it's a lot easier for me to have compassion on this guy. Which which helps me a little bit more to then listen to Jesus' words and then respond like the dad. Because Jesus challenges the can, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. I remember the Prince of Egypt movie that came out a long while ago. It was the one that reinterpreted the Ten Commandments, right? Because it used to be that the story of the Exodus belonged to Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner. And the Ten Commandments was always the thing. But then, you know, DreamWorks came along and they decided to do the Prince of Egypt and they sort of began to own everything. And the nice thing is that DreamWorks worked with different theologians in both uh, Jewish and in Christian circles trying to understand how to tell the story. And if you heard this, you know that there was a moment of real contention because the songwriters had written a song that they really liked and really wanted in the movie, and it was called, You Can Do Miracles If You Believe. And you can sort of see where they're coming from, uh, but the theologians were like, nah, we're not fond of that. And the songwriters were like, yeah, we don't care, we're fond of it. They're like, okay, well, let's, let's find different words that use the same tone, use the same melody. And what they settled on, you know, is there can be miracles if you believe. One of the theologians said, well, we didn't get everything we asked for, but we did get rid of some of the more problematic parts of this, right? Because if you ask the question from DreamWorks, you ask the question of who's doing the miracle, right? Where are these miracles coming from? And you'd kind of wish that, you know, there could be a little bit more clarity on that from the songwriters, except for one of the theologians said, well, you know, Mark wasn't much more clear than this, so we decided not to be either. Okay, let's let Mark have in his inspired work the ability to challenge us in the way that we think about it too. Because what he doesn't seem to accent, what Jesus doesn't seem to accent is limitations or inability, does he? There are no asterisks, but there's this general statement. All things are possible for one who believes. And when you hear that and you relay it, let me just talk to the parents for a little bit. Listen to the dad. Immediately, 
Mark's word, right? Immediately the Spirit had done his work, but now immediately the father of the child. If you're talking to a mom and you're asking, what are you praying for most right now? More often than not, she's not going to be talking about herself. She's going to be talking about her kids. She's going to be talking about her home. She's going to be talking about those that the Lord has given to her that have, have woken up something godly inside of her so that when God says, I'm like a mother hen who wants to put her wings around her little ones, moms can be like, oh, yeah, I, I feel that. I feel that sense of what God feels for his because if you're asking me what is consuming me right now, what's consuming me is this parental responsibility for my little one. And here's a dad saying, okay, it's, it's, I, I need to believe? That's what's going to matter? Okay, here's, here's what I can say. I believe. Oh, I believe. But honestly, I don't. But his phrase isn't, The verse doesn't read, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, please forgive me when I don't believe. But that would have been accurate. He doesn't say, I believe, what tactics can I use to improve my unbelief or to help me believe better? What books ought I read to help build my faith? He just says what we all need to say. I believe, and where I don't, I need your help. Which, strangely, is one of the best expressions of faith probably in the Bible. Because what is he saying? I believe you can help. Guys, we don't do this. Just got to be honest. Over my 15 years here, this is our one weakness. We got a lot of weaknesses. So I'm not trying to boil it down to one. But I'm saying if for the rest of this year, God could eliminate a weakness as we start to plan out the fall and the winter and the spring and ask what are we going to do over this next second of my calendar. I don't care about the programs. I don't care about, well, I do some. But prayerlessly finishing off the backyard prayerlessly creating programs, prayerlessly drawing more people from the community and from the church back into the building again. Don't want to see it happen. If God could do one thing, what if the one thing is that every time we experienced a problem, we said, help. What if that's all we did? What if we were just like this dad and we said, we believe, but help. Please just help. And so in his unbelief, he is demonstrating the kind of faith that we need because he's turning to the one who's diagnosed the problem and saying, if you can diagnose this, you can also help with it. I've been suffering from this with my kid for so long. And Job, after everything stripped away from him, we started the surface when Job's words, listen to the way that it, it, it kind of, Echoes again, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful me, which I did not know. 
And you get to the end and you say, Job, why did all that happen? When we look backwards in your life, why did all that happen? And Job said, man, too wonderful for me. But God can do anything. And I don't get now, but I trust him in the future and I will allow him to do what he wanted to do in the past. And I don't get where I am now, but I believe, but help my unbelief. I know you can do all things. It's not if you can, it's if you will. I know you can. It's not that I can do miracles, it's but there are miracles that can be there. I know all things are possible for the one who believes. And if the big thing I need to bring to the table isn't my re-education, if it isn't my sort of re-sort of training, if it's just my re-believing, then God, the one who can help me in my unbelief, is the one who supplied my belief in the the first place so would you please help me just believe more it's a cumbersome request when you really get there it's kind of circular logic except for it's focused on him and so it's beautiful and perfect because church the second point isn't that jesus just cares about our suffering it's that jesus cares about our believing and it seems as though the key question of whether or not we are believing maybe shown up in what we're able to do and not do. But that's not the source. The source becomes more clear when the disciples show up. In verse 28, Jesus, having had this conversation with the dad, then turns to the disciples because it says, when they entered the house, verse 28, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some versions add, and fasting. But interestingly, this whole point on prayer, it's Mark's and Mark's alone in the Gospels. The others who tell this story, they accent the faithlessness. Jesus has already made that point in Mark, right? He comes and he says, oh, you are a faithless generation. And how do we then know that they are a faithless generation? What is it that reveals their faith? It's at the end, it's in the doing. But Jesus says, I want to track it back from why you weren't able to do. It's because you didn't ask. That's it. Faithlessness equals prayerlessness. And that's what I'm saying I'd love to see be different for us. What if momentum this next year, Mike's not here, so I can suggest this, and he'll just have to listen to the recording. What if momentum was just us getting together and praying? There's a book we're actually considering for community groups this year. It's called Praying the Bible. Something like that. I messed up the title. Praying the Word. Thank you, Lily. Very good. Actually, Crossway has given us a bunch of free copies. But they've given us other free stuff, and we haven't used it, even though we have it sitting in storage. We'll use it someday. But right now seems like a very good time to go through a book like that. What if what we did when we gather is to unite our voice and say help? Just help. Because I'm, I'm taking this text and I'm moving it in this direction. You can tell we've, hopefully you can tell, kind of taken the service and tried to move it in this direction too. It's our first Sunday of the month. We said a few months ago we want to take those times and at the end of the service 
welcome up those who want to be prayed for. We want to be a lot more deliberate to do that. Not just on the first Sunday of the month, but the first Sunday of the month seems like a good reminder for us that we want to do this. But beyond that, beyond the content of what we get through, we want to hear Jesus from the beginning. That a faithless generation makes him kind of groan and sigh. And I don't want to elicit that response from God. I don't want us to go through another academic year, prayerless, faithless, wearying to Jesus. There's a lot of stuff we can't do. That's okay. Because we weren't made to do it. There would be other ways of looking at this passage, right? We could talk about the order of the ranks of the enemies, why it is that this demon in particular is one that Jesus singles out. But Mark doesn't spell all that out. I do wish that when we got through Ephesians chapter five, there was an addendum that Paul had asked attached at the end of the letter. It just says, for more information on spiritual warfare, see this addendum. That would have been super helpful because there's a lot of gray area in there, right? We hear about the ranks of the enemies. We hear something of what's going on with this kind of demon. And I'd love to tell you a lot more about that. It's just that there's not a lot more here to tell you about. So let's look at what Mark says, which is, just pray. It really doesn't understand that you, or it doesn't matter that you understand all the ranks of the enemies, but I can just tell you, had you asked, it would have worked. You didn't ask. So it didn't work. J.C. Ryle says, let us learn a lesson of humility from the failure of the disciples. Let us strive to realize every day our need of the grace and presence of Christ. With him, we may do all things. Without him, we can do nothing at all. With him, we may overcome the greatest temptations. Without him, the least may overcome us. We're going to face a lot of temptations, some great, some small. But if we face them on our own, we're going down. And if you face what has been coming up in your mind as we're looking at this passage on your own, you're going down too. But I just want you to know We don't want to see that happen. And I know you don't want to see us go down either. What if next May, as we're looking back on the school year, we ask the question, did we pray more? Did we ask more? Not did we do more, not did we grow more, but did we pray more? I think we'd find the burden of this working out. The good news is Peter and John were right there. They were probably at the front of the line failing miserably, causing Jesus to sigh. But something changed. Something changed so that at the end, in Acts chapter 3, we read this full story. Hear it again. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go to the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And I gotta be honest, if I'm Peter and John, it would be too easy for me at this very moment to think back, I remember that at one time we we tried to deal with something that had been happening since birth in somebody. Man, did we fail miserably on that one. Let's just move on. We don't seem to have good success with this kind of a problem. 
throw them a coin and let's look past. Something's different in these guys. And so they say, look at us. Verse 5, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Two questions at the end of your bullet. The first is, what is it that you think makes all things possible for those who believe? And I don't mean theologically. You just heard the answer. I mean, if you evaluate your life when a problem comes up, you know what you do then reveals what you believe. And too often we try to solve problems. Too often a dilemma arises we try to solve problems, and I just want to apologize to the halls because I was on the phone with them yesterday, and I did not pray with you. And I am so sorry. Try to solve the problem with you. And I didn't do the very thing that I was in the middle of talking about doing while we were talking on the phone. Here's your great leader in prayer for the next year, guys. Ah, help my unbelief, Lord. And if you find yourself like me, let's be quick to ask and slow to do. Quick to listen, slow to speak, unless we're speaking to God together. We need a lot. We really do. Take any of our stories apart, lay them out, and we need a lot but we have a God with whom all things are possible. So first question, what makes it possible? What makes all things possible for those who believe? The second question is this, and I meant to put a little bracket in, uh, but I didn't. How long or how much time must we waste before turning to God in prayer? I just turned 50 and I realized like, all right, well, if I'm going to be 100, half my life is over. I'm going to be 51. Well, okay, I'm a lot older than I think. But there is something about these moments, right, that make you realize how much time has gone by. 50 didn't bother me until my dad told me, well, what, how do you feel about being in your sixth decade? It's like, well, thanks, Dad. That was helpful. Time's flying. It is moving faster and faster. So... Why should we waste any more not praying? So let's do just that. Father, what we beg of you now is that you would help our unbelief. We confess how faithless we've been and how prayerless we have been. I confess how many details consume my mind, Lord, how slow I am to ask for help. Slow I am to get what I need to do reordered and restructured by you. And I pray that you'd help me and us to repent. We believe. We know you have the words of eternal life. We know that you've formed a community that won't ever fall. We know that your people will endure. 
but we put our eyes on so many other things. And we have our hope connected to so many other things and we repent, Lord. We believe, but we want your help so that we can believe more. We can believe better and stronger so that we can be amazed at the end with what you've ultimately done after we say amen. Or may we this next year pray like this without ceasing. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we kind of continue our